thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Well, I'm delighted to have you join me for today's episode of God, Law, and Liberty as we continue this reflection, discussion, on the building blocks that are necessary for restoring the foundations of the Western legal tradition that I talked about in the last series and that have essentially now been destroyed, the Supreme Court's decision on gay marriage being the final nail in the coffin. And I said last week that today we were going to begin to look at William Blackstone. And I hope you didn't tune in just for that because I think you're going to hear something actually better and most likely we'll get to William Blackstone next week. But something that was said on one of my favorite podcasts, I encourage you to listen to it. It's called Chalk Knox Unplugged with Chalk Knox who's on the Fight Laugh Feast Network and pastor, entrepreneur, writer, I guess you would say the, the, is the right word, uh, Jason Farley. And they said something the other day on a podcast that struck me that has to lie at the foundation of what we're doing in trying to restore the Western legal tradition. And it's such an excellent introduction, really, to William Blackstone and what he says about law and why what he says is not just true, not just good, not just logical, but beautiful. And so I I want to play this little short, less than two minute clip, maybe a minute and a half clip, of something that Chuck Knox says to which Jason Farley responds. And from there, I want to take you to something personal regarding my own life and my own understanding of the law and the beauty of the law. So I hope you'll listen here to this little clip. You know, the thing that I'm seeing, Jason, is there's this weird conflict, but we don't know what beauty is. We have have abandoned beauty, and the reason we know that we don't know what beauty is is because we're cowards. There isn't anything that will bring courage more than beauty. And if we don't have a concept and an idea for what beauty is, then I don't think, I think um, for me with COVID, it wasn't something beautiful that made me stand up and fight ultimately. If I'd be honest, it was probably something that was more that I saw that was negative coming. If we didn't fight, this is where we would be at. Mm-hmm. Right. So I I remember what COVID, but, you know, go ahead. I mean, that's, Ugly, ugly is supposed to motivate too, though, right? Right. So beauty motivates, but ugly is is also a des- designed to motivate. Right. We should be motivated. Not this, ugly. right? Yeah, yeah. That is that is bad. Ugly is bad. Beauty is good. But I wish that it was. But when when you're motivated against ugly, you don't ever build anything, though. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, what was so good there? to me was the point that it's seeing beauty that provides the courage we need 
to do what will need to be done to restore the Western legal tradition. In other words, the Western legal tradition may expound truths that we all say yes, yes, and intellectually we assent to them. But if we don't see in them a beauty that needs to be explicated, that needs to be talked about, that needs to be restored, we will lack the courage to face the opposition that will come from a world that must hate the Western legal tradition because it was grounded in a belief in God, the triune God, and that this was his cosmos. Because if all we have is bare truth, it will tend to wilt and be rationalized when opposition comes. But beauty, we will fight for what is beautiful. Now, I thought about this because I've recently been writing some commentaries about amendments to the Tennessee Constitution that will be on the ballot in November. One of them seems rather insignificant on its face, but as I read it and studied it, I, I realized it might have some unintended consequences. So I wrote about them. And I got a text from a member of the legislature, a high-ranking member of the legislature, that said to me, let me just quote, this is a fight you should not fight. As if trying to help people who are asking me how do I understand these amendments is a fight I shouldn't fight. And this is the stuff that marginalizes you in the legislature. In other words, it gets people mad at me. And part of the reason is, he says this, that this is not a noble fight. In other words, trying to make sure that people understand what's going on in their constitution is not a noble thing to do. He says, you, you step on your own foot by fighting a not-so-noble battle. Now, if you ask me, a legislature who's taken an oath to uphold the Constitution and, and to make sure he does nothing injurious to the people should never say that helping people understand the Constitution is not a noble battle. You should keep quiet because otherwise you'll marginalize yourself with the people who are in power. Now, what I had to realize was that if my success in what I've been called to depends on legislators liking me and not being upset that, that I would say anything critical of their work, even though I didn't call out any names, I didn't say who voted for the amendment, who opposed the amendment, who's supporting the amendment, I just said here's what the amendment does and I think it's got some unintended consequences. If that's what makes me successful in the legislature, then I'm not really trusting in God to bring about what he wants to bring about through my efforts. Now, I'm not saying here I can say and do anything I want, but I didn't do anything wrong, except talk about an amendment that in the eyes of this legislator is just not that important and I should have kept my mouth shut. So it's gonna take courage, my friends, to say you in the world can think this is the way things get done, but I see something really beautiful that to be honest, you're standing in the way of, and I'm gonna have the courage to pursue the good and the beautiful. Now, the other thing that's important about what uh, Chuck Knox and Jason Farley were saying 
is that indeed most of the efforts in the legislature, if you think about it, let's stop gay marriage, let's stop transgender surgery, let's stop CRT, let's stop certain books going into our public library. See, it's all negative. It's not giving any vision of the good or using the law to cast a vision of the good and the beautiful, but only to stop the bad. It's what I've talked about in connection with legislation and efforts to save women's sports. We don't talk about the beauty of women and we reduce them to biological measurements compared to those of men to determine what looks like fair competition. We've reduced women to some group of matter, cells, body parts, that we give some kind of meaning to, just so we can save scholarships for women, school records for women, real women, let's say. You see, we're not, we're not giving a picture of the good and the beautiful. And law can actually be used to help promote the good and the beautiful if we see law as fostering and encouraging and supporting and protecting the good and the beautiful. And when we see that, we'll have courage in regard to matters of politics and law and government. So I want to take a little time today to read to you something that I've put in the preface of a new book that I'm working on because it relates directly to this and it's a great lead-in to looking at what Blackstone says is the very nature of law, whether it's civil law or common law or the law of God. And, and I, I began because I was fascinated by this statement by the psalmist, Oh, how I love thy law, Psalm 119.97. And so I wrote, Few today love law, whether declared by authorities in civil government or the God of the Bible. Growing discontent with the law that governs us and those who make it, fueled by vacuous yet caustic political rhetoric from the left and the right, has led many to think a revolution of one kind or another is coming, and that's my sense too. However, the revolution about which I want to write, the one I pray is coming, is of a different kind. It's one in which Christians will, like me, come to love law. If you think such a love is impossible, and that it could not be positively revolutionary, then you should know two aspects of my personal story. And here's what I wrote in my personal story. Though I'm a law school graduate, my present disposition toward the law did not come from my legal education. I did not leave that institution with a love of law. Law was a way to make a living a means by which I could attain that level of material comfort I thought sufficient. It was the tool of my trade, the same as a hammer might be to a carpenter. Rather, this newfound love of the law flows from a God-directed journey into a greater knowledge of His glory in the face of Christ, quoting 2 Corinthians 4.6, that began in 2015. Over that time, I came to see human law, rightly understood and formed, as an historical explication of the law of God, which is a revelation of the love of God. I came to see that to love God is to love law and vice versa. I also know why I did not love law coming out of law school or during my practice of law thereafter. 
There was nothing to love. Law, as taught in most law schools over the last 80 years, has no connection to a God who, in his triune existence, is personality and love. In other words, there was no one, no person behind the law to which it pointed who could be loved for its sake. Law was a mere lifeless fact of history, devoid of any given, let alone eternal meaning, because it was assumed there is no eternal giver of meaning. Therefore, law was whatever it happened to be at a particular point in time. I now see my understanding and assessment of law was wrong. Law and its development, what we've been talking about with regard to the Western legal tradition, as with all things, are all about God from start to finish. However, this understanding of law in general, much less civil law, no longer exists as a guiding, let alone governing principle in our nation, or in my opinion, in the church. That loss stems from a fundamental change in the church's understanding of the relationship between cosmology, soteriology, and eschatology over the last 200 years. And of course, in the previous series, I talked about how there came to be a different understanding of soteriology in the 11th century, that the cataclysmic event in history had taken place with the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, and there was now a new creation started that would continue until the final judgment, and that became the eschatology that caused the development of law in the present reality, rather than saying our eschatology is to escape the creation, to escape the world for some spiritual existence. It is my thesis that the structure of law and government in our nation is now teetering on the brink of collapse because they're no longer rightly aligned on its foundation which is the Western legal tradition. That structure is like a house that no longer sits squarely on its foundation because of a tectonic earthquake. So when a structure and its foundation cannot be realigned, the only way forward is demolition or, and speaking of legal and governing structures, revolution. So what I then posit as I continue on in this little preface is this. Therefore, our choice is between demolition of our present structure by a revolution that I believe is already underway, or a reformation and restoration by the kind of revolution that I would propose, a counter-revolution. It's a counter-revolution toward a reformation like that from which the Western legal tradition developed for the stake of restoring that tradition and once again going forward in its development. That reformation will, over time, put our legal and governmental house back in order, realigned with its foundation. On this foundation, progress toward a just and righteous order and away from a lawless disorder can be made. What I will demonstrate is that this reformation and restoration necessarily entails a cosmological revolution. Christians must supplant the cosmology that replaced the one on which the Western legal tradition was grounded. It is this new cosmological order that's made our legal and government structure look irreparably broken. 
A cosmological counter-revolution will not be easy because all cosmological revolutions necessarily bring with them revolutions in soteriology and eschatology. And that's what we were talking about in the last series. We need to re-examine our view of soteriology because it will affect our eschatology. But our soteriology must be informed by our cosmology. What we believe is the nature of the world in which we live and what God's design and purpose was for that creation. Did he give it up and go to plan B? Or is what we read in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 still God's plan? This is now the second part of my story. What I am talking about here is not restoring the Western legal tradition as a primary goal. That change, I believe, will be the byproduct of Christians coming to love law, and more importantly, the God whose law is love. It is a reformation of the affections and a transformation of the mind that leads Christians individually and as part of an organic whole to say, as the psalmist said of the prophesied Messiah, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. That is the deeper reformation we need. And that's also the second aspect of my story, an ongoing reformation taking place in me in terms of my love of law, and more particularly, the law of God as an expression of the love of God. It is out of that overflow that I write. It, it's out of that overflow, my friends, that I do this podcast. And I do it with the hope that from its overflow will come a counter-revolution of cosmic proportions. Now, what we're going to do next week, and I promise I will do it next week, is we will get to William Blackstone because his understanding of law is rooted in his understanding of cosmology, of the nature of the world and the relationship of all things to the world. If that understanding of law is not restored, we will not restore the Western legal tradition. And we won't have the courage to restore that foundation unless we see its foundation as beautiful because that foundation for law is found in the God who made all things and sustained it and has planned for its restoration and glorification. And I pray that in the next episode, flowing from this episode, you will be able to come to see law in a different light and therefore see God in a different light. And I hope you'll join me next week for the next episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.